so this week we are obviously not in the Gospel of Mark, as you'll see. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 18. Uh, we, I wanted to, I was thinking about pressing forward, but uh, with some, uh, the, the week, next week of where I'll be away, I wanted to take a little bit more time and let the rest of the Gospel of Mark get its due attention as we are nearing the end of that study and it's coming down to the last several hours of Jesus' life. So I wanted to kind of uh, spend a little bit more time preparing for that. And this week, though, I wanted to bring you to one of my favorite uh, passages, uh, one of my favorite parables at least. Of course, as Pastor Nathan read, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican or tax collector, depending on your translation. Uh, This is a wonderful little story, uh, a story that reveals much about what Jesus has to say to us. I think it also reveals a lot about who is actually here in church this morning. And let me just say this. I love church. And I don't say that because I'm the pastor and I have to say that. I say it because I really do like church. Uh, My dad is a pastor. My grandfathers were both pastors. Uh, So I come from a heritage of pastoring churches, so to speak. Uh, I like to say that I grew up in Sunday school. uh, Sort of just part of my DNA. I think I was kind of born in Sunday school. Uh, I've just always been around church. My great-grandfather, in fact... He was a mortician, uh, so we were always around some sort of church function, so to speak. Uh, So uh, anyways, I've been around church a lot, (laughs) Uh, just growing up and being with my dad and my grandfathers and whatnot. So I love church. I'm not trying to sound super Christian or anything like that. I just really love church people. Uh, They were my closest friends. Uh, My church family was very much like a family to me. Whenever I go back to see uh, my dad's church, it's like a family reunion of sorts. Uh, And uh, anyways, I say all that to say this, that I've spent a lot of time in church. And I've been to different churches too. And just you're able to, with that sort of experience in churches, you're able sort of to grasp a lot about what goes on in a church and what constitutes a church itself. And I say that because even as I look across Stonington Baptist Church this morning, uh, there's a lot that is different about us. We would have to agree with that. And Well, it, there's young people, and then I, I, I found a new way to describe people who are not young. Uh, we were at our, church, or our house the other day, and we were talking to one of the main contractors there, and he counts his years in terms of ice cream seasons. And he said, oh, no, only one more ice cream season, he can retire after 20 ice cream seasons of working in his specific field. So I think it's a great way. Maybe you have more ice cream seasons under your belt than other people. Uh, that's, that's great. That's fine. You've been, been able to enjoy more ice cream than others. That's nothing to be ashamed of. So we have few ice cream seasons and lots of ice cream seasons. But we also have different just backgrounds and upbringings. You perhaps have different values than the person uh, sitting across from you. You have different interests or hobbies. There's a lot that is uh, different about us, even as we are here in the same auditorium. But I would like to say this, that I think despite all the things that we could parse out that's different between us, I would say that there's really only two types of people that go to church on Sunday morning. Only two types of people. Anybody who walks into a church, anybody who walks into Stonington Baptist Church this morning, or any church building across the country, I think they fall into one of two categories. And I think these categories are perfectly pictured for us here in this parable. This parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The scene is, of course, Pastor Nathan read, the scene uh, is a very uh, one that was uh, normative for the people of this day. The, The idea of going up to the temple to pray. 
So Jesus is here telling this parable about these two men who go up to the temple in Jerusalem to pray. A familiar scene to Jesus' audience. And like Pastor Nathan mentioned also, Luke's description of Jesus' audience is the key, I think, to understanding the entire story. As he says there, he spoke this parable, this story he was going to tell to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This is the key to understanding the whole story. Because essentially, Jesus is going to talk to Pharisees about Pharisees. It takes a lot, of, a lot of confidence and gusto to do that. But he does so here in a few short verses. I would say also dismantling their entire notions of self-righteousness. And so here, I just want to kind of contrast these two characters. The Pharisee and the tax collector. And I want us to see how they perfectly display for us the two types of people that come to church. So first of all, look at verses 11 and 13. I'm going to read some of these verses. Because first of all, I want you to notice the form. The form of their prayers. Look look with me really quick. Uh, Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God... I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Here we have to see the form of their prayers because here the Pharisee prays, I would say, very pompously. His prayer is not very much of a prayer. He stands, as it says there, close to uh, the, the altar. It says he stood and prayed thus with himself. The idea is he's close to the front of the temple. Close as possible as he could get, with, uh, get to the altar. Away from everyone else. He stood with himself. He's by himself. Away from other people. Away from the so-called sinners that had come to the temple that day. It's indicative of his attitude. He doesn't want to be with those filthy sinners who are coming to the temple and praying. He is better than they are. He has to be as close as he can. He can't fellowship with these sinners. He can't fraternize with these temple patrons that aren't worthy of being in his vicinity. He's praying by himself. Standing proudly. Standing with lots of confidence in himself. And I imagine too, he's praying really loudly. He's not saying a simple, God, I thank you. He's saying in his loudest, most righteous voice, God, I thank you that I am not like these other men. He's praying so everyone could hear him. He's praying so that everyone in the temple that day would would go home making, and they would be sure that they knew that he was religious, that he was righteous, that he was holy. Look how good he prays. That's essentially what he's doing here. God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men. And just as Jesus says elsewhere, Jesus was everywhere trying to dismantle the Pharisees' self-righteousness and self-confidence. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he talks about the fact how the Pharisees, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. And here he's using that as an example against them. About this Pharisee standing in the synagogue, being seen by men, standing so that he could be noticed. He's praying very pompously. Because in his eyes, he was righteous. 
In his eyes, he was okay. In his eyes, he was making it. In his eyes, he was already holy. Such is why he's standing as close as possible to the altar. Such is why he is standing away from other people. He's holy in and of himself. He's okay in and of himself. He doesn't need to be with the others who were praying that day. He didn't need to repent. You notice his prayer? There's nothing in the way of asking the Lord for mercy. He's just telling God how good he is. How right he is with God. I do all of these things. Thank you for not making me like other men. Thank you that I'm not an extortioner or an unjust person or an adulterer. Thank you for not making me like this IRS guy beside me. Not an IRS guy. A tax collector beside me. That was a joke and it was bad. Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) But I think that's the biggest travesty that we can commit. Failing to see our need. See, the Pharisee here, as he's praying, he doesn't even know how needy he is. He doesn't even know that he needs God desperately. He's blind to his own spiritual heart and spiritual condition. And I think that oftentimes that describes us. I know it describes me. That there are times in my life where I'm so blind to just how desperate I am. Where I'm banking on the things that I've been doing for God, so to speak. Yet, what does God do? He brings us to our knees to make us see what? That God only works through desperation. God works through desperate people. That's where faith is found and faith is born. In desperation. In the heat of failure. In ruin oftentimes. Because the biggest barrier that prevents God from using you. From working in your life, from working uh, through you to affect others and to influence others is the pride that you showcase on a daily basis. The pride that you evidence in your life. That's the biggest hindrance from God working, God moving, God using you. Such is why we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is everywhere uh, constantly uh, trying to show us our need. Show us how desperate we are. Show us how grave and desperate we need Jesus. That's his ministry. He's pointing us to that fact. That we are self-sufficient. We aren't able or capable or able to get through and thrive by ourselves. We are utterly dependent upon God. So this Pharisee is evidencing for, uh, for us this. That you and I, we don't just need saving grace. Grace to save us from our sins. We need eye-opening grace. To make us aware that we need saving grace. We need to have our eyes and our hearts and our souls open to the fact that we need this. That we are this way. That we are desperately unrighteous. And we need this mercy of the Savior. This is the Pharisee's prayer. A pompous prayer. But notice verse 13. Because the form of the tax collector's prayer is completely different. Notice how he prays. And the tax collector, standing afar off, will not so much as raise his eyes to heaven. But beats upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice how contrasted it is. The the Pharisee was standing away from everyone else as close as he could. 
Away from other people because he didn't want to be with those other unholy sinners that were there in the temple that day. And here the, the tax collector, it says, is standing afar off, as far away as he could. In the back corners of the synagogue, so to speak. He doesn't want people to notice that he's there. He's ashamed. He's maybe slightly embarrassed. He's not even raising his eyes towards heaven. He's bowing his head. Because he understands, he knows deep within his own soul just how tremendously unholy and unworthy he is to even be there. He's a tax collector, a publican. He's the same as Zacchaeus. A publican and a tax collector in this day was, they were legendary for their dishonesty. Notorious swindlers and extortioners. Unjust men, despised by literally everyone around them. (laughs) You wouldn't want to sign up to be a tax collector, except if you just wanted to have lots of money in your bank account. Because they didn't really have a lot of friends, except for friends who wanted money from them. But they were employed by Rome, empowered by Rome. So you got to think about it this way. When you think about a tax collector here in this first century, especially in Jesus' day, think about it this way. It's as if your neighbor is working for the occupying force that's overrunning your town, raising taxes on you to pay for the occupying force that's overrunning your town and dominating your people. It's a person who is essentially a traitor, a Benedict Arnold, A betrayer of all people that are around them. And all for what? To put money in their pockets. To blow up their bank accounts. To make sure that they were able to live comfortably and easily. This was a tax collector. They were outcast people. Social pariahs and lepers. No one wanted to hang around them. They were despised by their own countrymen. They were seen as weasels by Rome because they were taking and taxing off of the top. And they were also despised by their own countrymen because they were betraying the national, uh, national pride of Israel. By selling themselves out to Rome to make money for themselves. This is a tax collector. This is this tax collector here. You can imagine then he might be embarrassed to be there. He knows he's not in any way spiritual. That he's not in any way that's living up to the, the, the righteous laws of the day that were evident in the Pharisees. He knew he didn't belong. That's why he can only pray this. God be merciful to me a sinner. I imagine him in the back corners of the temple that day, looking down, trying to mumble and stutter and, and stumble over any words he can get out. He's never really prayed before. He's never really prayed a long, elongated prayer to God or ever tried to do this before. I imagine him coming out and saying, God, I don't really know what to say. I've never really done this before. But what I do know, God, be merciful to me Sinner. These are all the words that came out. And yet, these are words that are immensely powerful. The Pharisee prays in his pomp and his pride. The, the, the tax collector prays in his humility and contriteness. He knows how sincerely unworthy he was. He bows his head and beats his chest. Because he knows he doesn't deserve to be there. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
But notice again, I want you to look uh, at these verses again, because not only do I want to look at the form of their prayers, I want to look at the substance of their prayers. Because it's not just how they pray. The Pharisee is standing and in confidence. The tax collector is bowing in humility. But also notice what they pray about. Look again at verses 11 and 12. Because the Pharisee's prayer is extremely pious. Look at verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This prayer is a laughable prayer. (laughs) It's probably the worst prayer I've ever heard. (laughs) Because it's not really much of a prayer at all. He's not really praying. He's just spouting to God. This laundry list of accomplishments that he has been able to do in the past week. Look at all these things that I do, God. Look at all these things I'm able to accomplish. He says, I fast twice a week, he announces, which, by the way, is more than what was required. It's more than what was uh, required by the law for those uh, religious people in the day. So essentially you have the Pharisee here explaining and announcing that he's trying to buy God's favor by doing more than what the law required. I'm trying to go above and beyond the law. Look, God, look at how holy I am. I'm even more righteous than what you require. That's how righteous I am. He's bragging to God. Throwing his religious resume in God's face. Look at all my deeds. Look at all the good things that I'm doing. And notice though that the Pharisee. Notice how he pretends that he's more righteous. I love verse uh, verse 11 again. He says, thank you for not making me like other men. Not making me like the ones who extort other people, who are unjust, who commit adultery, or even as this tax collector. What is he doing? He's comparing himself to other people's faults and failures to make himself feel better. He's using other people's badness to make his goodness shine more in the spotlight, so to speak. Which is kind of a faulty way of measuring holiness. By measuring your holiness against someone else's unholiness. (laughs) But that's what he's doing. God, thank you for not making me as imperfect as that imperfect guy over there. I'm not as bad as that dude. I'm a little bit, at least a little bit better than him. This is what the, the Pharisee is, quote, praying. And this is something I think that resonates with me. Because I think we're experts at looking at other people and saying, man, I'm glad I'm not as bad as that person. I'm glad that I'm not as unrighteous as that person. And we won't even use those words, perhaps, unrighteous. We, we'll use, I'm, I'm glad that I'm at least a little bit more faithful than they are. I at least come to church a little bit more than they do. See, we all believe, Romans 3.23, that, you know, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But yet, that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. <laughs> that's, that's a quote from one of my friends. I just love how he puts that. That We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But that hasn't stopped us from comparing distances. Because <laughs> we like to do that. And essentially, this is what the Pharisee is doing. He's parsing out and measuring the fallenness. I'm not quite as fallen as that guy. 
Because remember, I've fasted and I've, and I've given and I've given up my time and my money and my energy. So I'm not as fallen. This is what the Pharisee is doing. But in so doing, he's actually ruining any sense of holiness that he has in his life. Because by comparing ourselves to other sinners, we are failing to rightly comprehend the holiness of God. Because of this, the, the measure of God's holiness, get this, the measure of God's holiness is not comparative obedience, is the unblemished, righteous, perfect obedience of Christ. It's not comparing yourself to other, another person and, and thinking that at least I'm a little bit better than they are. The standard is not someone else. The standard is Jesus himself. His obedience is the bar. His obedience is the measure. His righteousness is the standard that we all live up to. That we all measure up to. It's the standard that we have to live up to if we are wanting to fulfill the righteousness of the law. Such as Jesus' assertion in Matthew chapter 5 verse 48. Be ye holy, for I am holy. No qualifiers. No sort of ways to get around that. No explanation. No anything. It's that's it. That's the standard. You can't compare yourself into fulfilling that standard. You can't compare yourself or compare distances of fallenness that meet that standard. We have all fallen, period. The Pharisee is blind to this. And this Pharisee thinks he's made it. He thinks that his righteousness is living up to it. That his goodness is fulfilling what God requires. But his prayer is worth nothing. His righteousness is worth nothing. It's devoid of anything worshipful or thankful. Notice again. Does he ever once mention God other than to address him? He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even as the tax collector. I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. It's a prayer of self-centered, self-sufficiency through and through. He's not praying at all. He's just trying to describe how good he is. The Pharisee's prayer is nothing but piousness. But notice the tax collector's prayer to compare it. Because the substance of his prayer is everything that is, that is uh, penitential, that is, that is repenting. Look at what he says. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's not, he's not standing in pride. He's bowing his head in humility, indicating the profound guilt that he was feeling, that was coursing through his body. He couldn't even lift his eyes upward. He couldn't even raise his head to heaven because he knew what sort of sinner he was. And he makes no excuse for it. He's not trying to qualify his fallenness. He is just saying, God, I'm a sinner and I need your mercy. He's just pleading for a scrap of grace from the table of God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Again, a prayer that I don't think that he was thinking would resound and resonate 2,000 odd years later. It's not a prayer that I think that many would believe that would become what it is. But my friends, this is the substance of all of our prayers. 
God be merciful to me, a sinner, ought to be the substance of every single one of our prayers. We ought to know how much we need God. And a humble recognition of your emptiness and Jesus' fullness for you. This is how we ought to pray. This is the substance of our prayers. But notice lastly, verse 3, or excuse me, verse 14, the consequence of their prayers. So they've prayed in their distinctive forms, with their distinctive languages, with the substance of their prayers being very disparate. And here we have the final outcome, the consequence of how they've prayed. And look at what it says. Jesus, I says, I tell you, this man, meaning the publican, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two guys going to the same place and leaving with very different outcomes. The Pharisee leaves condemned. Notice it says, rather than the other, he's the other. Who does not receive justification for what he did at the temple that day. Why? Because he didn't go to the temple looking for justification at all. He didn't go to the temple looking for mercy because he thought he already had it. That he already deserved it because of what he was doing. He didn't go looking for grace. He thought he was already had it. He was confident that he had already fulfilled all righteousness in himself. Look at what I've done. Yet in God's eyes, as Jesus here clearly delineates for us, he was anything but righteous. He didn't return to his house justified. He returned to his house condemned. Because for all of his efforts... For, his, for the Heavenly Father, God, to notice his resume. You know what God saw? All God saw was a man who thought he could be righteous in and of himself. Of a man, he just saw a man who thought he could be good enough in himself by his own deeds. It's a prayer. It's a life that is anything but righteous. Because it's full of self-righteousness and self-confidence. And yet in direct contrast to that, Jesus says that the, this man, the, the tax collector, he goes down to his house justified. He leaves. Made right with God. He leaves the temple that day. After having openly confessed his desperation and his sin. In his utter need for, his, for the Lord's mercy. He leaves with the Lord's blessing. Why? Precisely because he had no good deed to rely on. He didn't come relying on some goodness. He came knowing how desperate and bad he was. And that's precisely the point. We possess no amount of goodness that can sustain us against God's holy standard. Again, because it's not comparing fallenness. It's a standard that is is set by Jesus himself. You don't possess any amount of goodness that can live up to that or can be measured against that. That sounds like bad news. And it is. That's the point. Because Jesus is the good news. The Pharisee left condemned for the sin that he tried to hide. And yet the tax collector left justified for the sin that he didn't conceal. 
but that he confessed. And here we have these two men, and they show for us this morning the two types of people that come to church, fakers and fugitives. The Pharisee is a faker. One who comes to church, who revels in his religious activity and the things that he's doing for God. He comes to church hoping that others see how good he is, how Christian he is. So that other people might see him and notice something about them. Fakers are those who come to church only hoping that people notice them. They notice their faith, notice their goodness. Then you have fugitives, just like this publican, this tax collector, who come to church knowing that they have no trick in their hand that can live up to God's standard of holiness. They come knowing how desperate, how needy they are. Those might sound like gruff categories. (laughs) And they are. But I use them because I know them from experience. Me, I have been a faker and a fugitive myself. I told you at the beginning that I grew up in church. This is true. Born in Sunday school. (laughs) Yet I wasn't saved until I was 16 years old. I lived in church. I was around church people. I could tell you the gospel of penal substitutionary atonement and I wasn't even saved yet. I knew theology. I knew Christianity. I knew what the gospel meant. I preached before I was even saved. I was a pastor's kid. I knew what to say. I knew how to sound. I knew how to talk. Like the Pharisee, I knew how to fake it. I knew what it meant to be Christian. And all the while, I was hiding. I was concealing a deep desperation for Jesus. And it wasn't until I was 16 years old. I remember it. I, I can close my eyes and remember it. I was brought to camp. And I say brought literally because I, was, I had no interest in attending summer camp that year. <laughs> my sister convinced me, begged me basically to go. I went. I remember sitting. It was a summer camp, of course, with youth. And so it was Wednesday. And Wednesday's the, the big preaching day to like lay down the hammer, so to speak. And the guy did. The preacher laid down the hammer. I remember sitting in a pew. It was a chair, actually. And it was like the spotlight of God was right on me. And there was no one else in that room. It was like the speaker was speaking directly to me. I remember shaking. It was, I was literally almost convulsing in my seat. Why? It was the Holy Spirit convicting me. And it took every ounce of of gumption to get out of my seat at the end of that service. Why? Because I was almost too prideful to even admit that I needed God. I almost didn't get up. I almost didn't go out and and try to find someone to help me pray. Because I was still trying to fake it. I was a pastor's kid. I was sitting next to my best friend and my cousin who had been with me for 16 years and seen me in church and seen me do spiritual things and be a Christian. How could I get up and admit that I needed God? 
Thankfully, I did. Somehow, I made it out of that room. And a, and a, a counselor came. And I, just, I don't remember what I prayed. I just remember crying. Because in that moment, I, the, the fakery had stopped. And I realized that what? That I was a fugitive that needed to stop running. I was a desperate, weary sinner that needed to just stop and rest. Rest from trying to fake it. And rest from trying to make it on my own. And rest from trying to be my own savior. I remember that moment coming face to face with my desperate need of Jesus. And that's what saved me. is Jesus alone. Jesus who gives us this message. This hope. This gospel of good news that comes to fakers and to fugitives. And you know why I'm so passionate about this? Because I know in my heart that this is still me oftentimes from day to day. And maybe you have to admit this too. That sometimes you come to church and you're a faker. You want people to see how good you are. And sometimes you come to church and you know that you've been running and you're a fugitive. And you need some message of relief. And this is the good news. That the gospel of God's salvation is addressed to everyone. Fakers and fugitives alike. It's addressed to those who think they deserve God's favor. And it's addressed to those who know that they don't. Why? Because the gospel is for sinners. And sinners are all that there are. This church this morning is full of sinners. I praise God for that. Because the gospel is for sinners. It's news that comes down to those who know that they don't uh, and they can't make it. If you don't think you're a sinner, why are you here this morning? Because the church is not a place to show off. It's not a place to come and, 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 and let people see how good you are. It's a place to be rescued by Jesus. It's a place to be reoriented by God's grace. It's a place to stop your running. To stop your pretending. To lay down your arms. And know that you are desperate. And that yet what? God loves the desperate heart. God knows you. God knew when I was Preaching for the Lord that I was just faking it. God knew all of those years of my life when I pretended to be good that I was just trying to get by. He knew the, 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 the wrath and the, the sin and the rage and the anger that was deep inside my soul. He knows you better than you know yourself this morning. And his message to you is the same. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from your faking and rest from your running. Either way, the good news is for you this morning. The good news is that righteousness has, been come, to, uh, has come to you as a gift. It's given to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to pretend that you're making it. You have it in Jesus. 
So you can stop faking. You can stop running. You can rest in the God. The God of fakers and fugitives alike. The God of sinners. Let us pray.